Who is this man? That is the name of our series. Once again, I'm Dion. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And um, we are in week four of this series, looking at the worldwide long-term impact of the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done. He's changed our world in so many ways that I don't even think we realize. Uh, So we've got this week and next week. I hope you're enjoying this. Uh, Hopefully even more than enjoying this, though. Uh, hopefully you're, you're coming deeper into the person of Jesus and understanding more about who he is and what he has in mind for you. Before we dive in today, let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have given your son to us, and we thank you for all of the good that he has brought into the world, the, the, the lasting, enduring good that still exists today. Father, we pray that you would now open up our hearts and minds to, to see Jesus' impact a little more clearly at another facet of it. But Father, we pray that you would use us to be a part of his ongoing work in this world, this world that is so broken, this world that is filled with bad news. Use us to be people of good news. We pray it in Jesus. Amen. Now, um, just to be transparent with you, and I I try to do that, uh, I'll acknowledge that this week I was was thinking, and and here's what I kept thinking over and over again. Um, Sometimes I really hate being a pastor. Not for, not for the work. I, the work's actually pretty rewarding even when it's stressful. It's, it's good work. What I hate about being a pastor are all of the intangibles that no one at seminary ever really told me about when I was in training. No one told me about it before I went to seminary. It's stuff that I've just figured out over the years that make being a pastor difficult. For example, uh, just this last week, Tuesday, I was, um, I was sitting in a, a, uh, a driveway, uh, you know, a business on Manchester Road trying to turn left. Now, for those who are joining us online who might not be familiar with Manchester Road, the, the fine road that we sit on here at, uh, at St. John, um, picture a busy interstate with a left turn lane in the middle of it and cars coming at you from every direction because that's what Manchester Road is like. And so I'm sitting there waiting to try to pull out on Manchester Road, and you know how treacherous that can be. Um, so finally I see my gap coming, and, uh, and so I, I, I turn out, and I get in the left turn lane, and I do what you're supposed to do. I, you know, I get in the left turn lane, and I stop, and I wait. I don't drive down the left turn lane. I wait, and uh, I wait for another opening behind me. So I'm watching the flow of traffic in my mirror, and, and I'm looking for that gap so I can get over into traffic and, and be on my way. And, and finally, I see it. I see a gap coming. And so I prepare myself for it. I'm ready to go. And, uh, and I, just as the, as the gap is, is coming up on me, I punch my accelerator. I'm ready to whip over into traffic. I got a little car. It goes fast, so uh, no problems there. But what I notice as I'm ready to pull over into the flow of traffic is the guy behind me, the guy in traffic behind me, sees me coming, and he hits his accelerator too, and he, he takes away my gap on purpose. And so I have to jam on my brakes, abort the mission, right? And then I have to stop there for another minute and wait for another gap. But the story doesn't end there. Because eventually I do get into traffic, and I play a little pole position, and I find my way right behind this guy or gal or whoever it is, and I ride their tail while I'm trying to think of what I can do to get even. Because, again, i got a little car, so it's not like I can, you know, crack. You know, I, I don't know. But I'm, I'm going through my mind and saying, what can I do to show this punk that what they did was not okay? And then a terrifying thought occurs to me. Dion, what if this person goes to your church? <laughs> it's just not right. 
Well, that was Tuesday, and so then a Wednesday comes along, and a Wednesday morning I'm getting ready to come to work. Uh, it's, it's early in the morning, and uh, I'm getting ready to leave, and, and I get a call from my wife. Now, my wife had gone out for a run, you know, 20, 30 minutes before, and uh, so it was kind of weird that I was getting a call from her. It made my heart start beating a little faster, going, why, why is she calling me? She's supposed to be out running. And then I pick up the phone, I answer, and uh, her voice is shaky, and I'm like, what, is, what just happened? And she tells me the story. What had happened is she was on her run, and uh, out of nowhere comes a dog, and this dog comes after her a little bit and is, is nipping at her and, and, you know, like scratching her and biting at her shoes. And, and she's trying to fight this dog off. And, and we don't have a dog and um, this is a bigger dog. And so my wife, she, she's, she's yelling at it, telling it to go home. And, and, and no one is responding. And after a couple of minutes of, of, of contending with this dog, finally someone comes out of a house um, across the street, a couple of houses down. They come out, they start yelling at the dog. They grab the dog, they go in their house and they say nothing to my wife. And she's left there trembling, and, and she's upset about all of this, and, and, and they said nothing. And so she tells me all of this on the phone, and I think, okay, well, I'm going to have to make a stop on the way to work today and go set someone straight about their dog, and, you know, you don't treat my wife that way. And, um, and, and you know, so I'm like, okay, all right, let me know. What's the house look like? Where are you? Okay. So she, she gives me a rough uh, approximation of what the house looks like in the neighborhood that she's in, and I'm like, do you need me to pick you up? She's like, no, I'll be home in just a second. I'll, I just, I'm fine. I just have to walk this off. And um, and so um, I call Chris Toomey, who was, was up here. He's a good friend of mine. And I say, Chris, are you at work yet? And he said, no, I'm on my way. And I said, why don't you make a detour and come over? I need backup. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what I'm about to get myself into, but I might get myself into something. So why don't you come over? And so he picks me up, and, and we go, and we're driving, and we're trying to figure out where this house is. Now, in my wife's distress, she didn't get the description of the house right. She's described a house that doesn't exist. And so um, we're driving up and down the road trying to find this house, and I'm even FaceTiming her, and I'm showing her the house. I'm like, is this the house? Is this the house? She's like, no, that's not it. That's not it. And we never did find the house, which is a good thing because as we were driving to the neighborhood, again, I'm thinking, Dion, now wait a minute. What if this person who lives in this house that you're about to confront, what if for the first time ever they show up to St. John on a weekend and they see you on the platform, but their first introduction to you was not on the platform. It was actually you standing at the door of their house yelling at them about their dog. See, it's not fair, is it? This burden I have to carry being a pastor. I hate it sometimes. Now, in the ancient world, things were different when it came to vengeance. Vengeance was an expected part of society. If, if someone hurt you, if someone did something wrong to you, it was perfectly within your right to retaliate. In either one of those circumstances, this week, I would have been well within my rights in the ancient world to get even, and no one, no one would have thought less of me. See, even in ancient religious practices, vengeance or retaliation was a normal part of their custom. In the book, Who Is This Man? It, we've used it to build this series. It's a book by John Ortberg. Um, he describes um, what, what, what they find all over the ancient Roman world, especially Roman temple ruins, Roman pagan temple ruins. They find what, what, what are called curse tablets. I'd never heard of these until I read the book. Curse tablets. And uh, what these curse tablets are is, well, well by an analogy, let me explain to you this way. You know how in our culture, um, we've got these, these fountains or wishing wells, and you can, you can put in a coin and make a wish, and your wish is supposed to come true. You know how that works, right? Well, in the ancient world, it was kind of different. They were a little more aggressive, so they didn't have wishing well fountains. But what you could do is you could, take, you could take a coin, you could give it to a pagan priest in a temple, and you could tell him the name of someone that you wanted him to curse, and specifically what you wanted him to curse them with. He would write it down on a tablet, put it in the temple for the gods to find, and it was, you know, it was, it was a curse. So uh, they found these curse tablets all over 
Roman pagan temple ruins, which shows us that vengeance was a perfectly normal part of ancient society. Uh, Today, in fact, I want to show you what one man in specific requested on his cursed tablet. So um, one guy named uh, Dosimidus, he requested this. So it says, the priest wrote this down, Dosimidus has lost two gloves. He asks that the person who has stolen them should lose his mind and his eyes in the temple at the place where the goddess appoints. It's pretty harsh for a pair of lost gloves, isn't it? Maybe they're very special gloves. We don't know. Um, However, the point is, again, this was normal stuff. Retaliation, vengeance, it just made sense in the ancient world. But then Jesus came along, and he messed everything up for those of us who like to get even. Because look at what Jesus said. Matthew 5, he said, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Right? I mean, this is common sense. Love your neighbor, love your family, love the people who are close to you. But hate your enemy. I mean, get even if you want to. That's okay. They're your enemy. But Jesus says this, and this is revolutionary. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies? This is crazy advice. Love your enemies? I mean, who who would ever do that? And yet Jesus spoke these words, and there were actually people who listened. There were people who took that to heart, who tried to love their enemies, and they began praying for those who persecuted them. Part of the way that the early church grew is is that as Christians were being martyred, as they were being killed for their faith, they forgave those who were perpetrating this offense against them. And as a result of this, because of these teachings of Jesus, because of how he himself died on a cross pronouncing forgiveness over people, people began to look at their enemies differently. Vengeance became less okay. Retaliation became a thing that civilized people don't do, and the world looks totally different today because of it. See, loving your enemies is a part of the legacy of Jesus. He brought it into the world. But as as impressive as that is, in my experience, and I'll just, again, be blunt with you, knowing how to deal with your enemies, that's relatively easy compared with how to deal with your family and your friends when they hurt you. See, one of the greatest human struggles that I've encountered in people consistently over and over again is this question, how do I forgive someone who has hurt me? And not just anyone, but someone close to me. I mean, betrayal by an enemy, that makes sense. You kind of expect it. And you can deal with that. But betrayal by a friend? There are few things in life more painful. And so time and again, I encounter people in counseling in life who ask the question, how am I supposed to get over? How am I supposed to deal with someone in my life who has hurt me, who has offended me, who has betrayed me, who has sinned against me. How am I supposed to handle that? See, Jesus had something to say also about this. Not just how to treat your enemies, but how to treat your friends and your family when they sin against you. And I want to tell you, his words are no less revolutionary than the words we just looked at. Now, these words today are going to be found in Luke chapter 7. They're kind of implied, they're subtle. We're going to have to do some digging to get to this, but it's a powerful truth once we get there. So Luke chapter 7, you can look in your Bible right now in the seat rack if you're here in the room. That's on page 1035. Uh, you can open up your smartphone and go to uversion.com or open up that app, or you can look along right here. We're going to dive right in. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined, at the table. So this is how you, you know, you have a meal in the ancient world. You, you kind of kick back, you recline at the table. A woman in that town 
who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So you're tracking so far a Pharisee, an important religious guy, very respected in society. He hosts a party. He invites Jesus over. And somehow this woman shows up. Now, as, as I read that, every time I wonder, what drew this woman there? Why is she there? Certainly she wasn't a, an invited guest. She was a sinful woman and everyone knew it. Everyone in town had, had known about her sinful life. And so you can let your imagination go about what she might have done, what her specific sin might have been. But it was a public sin that people knew about. But for some reason, there she is. Either because she's heard of Jesus and she wants the chance to meet a teacher like him because he's different. Or, or maybe she was even there to be a part of a trap. Maybe the host paid her to be there. I, I think there's a good chance this woman was paid to do things in her life. And so maybe she was paid to be there to, to trap Jesus, to set him up in an uncomfortable set of circumstances to see how he would respond. But, but here's what we know. She shows up, she's there, and she starts behaving in a very socially inappropriate way, a very uncomfortable way with all of this crying on Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, now watch what happens as, as this uh, whole thing unfolds. When the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I mean, you can see the look in this guy's face, the look of disgust and disdain, the, you know, the smug look of disapproval. He doesn't even say anything out loud, but Jesus reads his face, reads his heart. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more. Now, before we answer this question, I want to put the question to you. There's a money lender. I mean, if, if you can find this guy, borrow money from him because he's really generous, right? Um, in a modern day equivalent, you could think maybe one guy borrows $60,000, the other guy $6,000. So $60,000, $6,000. The money lender forgives the debts of both of them because they can't afford to pay him back. The question is, which of those people, the guy with 60 or the guy with six, $60,000 or $6,000, which will love the money lender more? Jesus asked this question to Simon. I want you to answer it in your heart right now. Which one should love him more? Let's see how Simon answers. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman. Now get this. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, because here's the point. Here's the application. Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. I mean, what a crazy narrative, isn't it? 
See, on one hand, you've got this guy, Simon, and he's a respected Pharisee. He's a good guy. He's a religious guy. He's a faithful guy. We met a guy like him last week. And in small and subtle ways, though, Simon, the host of this party who invites Jesus, he he begins to insult Jesus. He's being cruel to Jesus, but his ways are so small and so subtle that, that most people wouldn't detect it. Or if they did and Simon was called out on it, He'd be able to, to just deny it, to, to write it off, to excuse himself. See, when, when you come into someone's house, you, sh- you should greet them. But we find out that Simon doesn't greet Jesus. He doesn't give him a kiss, which is customary. Jesus walks into his house as a guest and he snubs him. And then when it comes time for the meal, Jesus is lying there, reclined at the table, waiting for the meal. But he's not been offered any water for his feet. He's not been offered any oil for his head to freshen himself up. And so there he is amongst all of these other, you know, dignified, important guests. And Jesus is dirty. He's rank from travel. And there he is lying there just, just being humiliated by Simon, his host. But again, Simon's ways are so subtle. They're, they're so small. They're cruel. But they're understated. So on one side you have Simon, on the other side you have this, this sinful woman who is anything but small or subtle in her actions. Her actions are, are big, they are outlandish. I mean, here she is, she shows up at a house that is not hers, an uninvited guest, and, and she in big ways begins to cry on Jesus' feet, wiping his dirty feet clean with her hair. And she begins kissing his feet, and, and then she takes perfume, a very expensive vial of perfume, and she doesn't anoint Jesus' head with it, but she anoints his feet with it. See, in small ways, Simon disrespects him, subtle, cruel, and in big ways, this woman honors Jesus. These two people are worlds apart in attitude and in behavior. And the question for us is, what's the core difference between the two? Is it a matter of upbringing, of manners, of personality? No. What Jesus says is that, is that the difference between these two people has everything to do with forgiveness. See, in this short parable, Jesus is implying a question that he wants Simon to ask himself, and he wants all of us to ask this question as well. The question is, have I been forgiven much or little? Have I been forgiven much or little? See, before you can ask the question of yourself, how do I deal with the people in my life who have sinned against me? You have to ask this question first. Have I been forgiven much or little? Right now, ask yourself that question. Go ahead. Answer it for yourself. Have you been forgiven much or little? But I should say it's actually a trick question. See, we all have been forgiven much. There's not a person who has lived who's only been forgiven little. We've all been forgiven much, and yet only some of us will acknowledge that. See, the sinful woman in the story, she was actually at an advantage in this regard in answering this question. Because she had lived a sinful life that everyone knew about, and so every day of her life, she was reminded of the fact that she was sinful. Every look that she got from someone in town, those, those smug disdainful looks. They reminded her of her sin. Every day she was confronted, minutes, you know, several times a day, every few minutes she was confronted with her sin. And so this woman, she was not deceived about who she was. She was not deceiving anyone else, and she was certainly not deceiving herself. She understood that she was a big sinner, 
And I think the reason she showed up there and the reason she poured her heart out to Jesus in this way is because she knew she had been forgiven much. See, some of you sitting here today, you are also at that kind of advantage. And I know sometimes, most of the time, it doesn't feel like an advantage. But you're a person who has lived a life that, that other people have seen as sinful and, and it's public and it's, it's known and, and people know that about you and, and they look at you and, and there's judgment there and you feel that over and over again. You can't escape the reality of your sin. And, and I know that can be painful and that can be crushing. In this moment, it can be to your advantage. Because just like that woman, you're not deceiving anyone and you're certainly not deceiving yourself when it comes to this question. But I know on the other side, there are lots of us sitting in the room today who maybe are a lot more like Simon. And see, we believe, if you're like Simon, that we've only been forgiven little. We're not being honest with ourselves about all of this. And the reality is, we we sin just as much as anyone else, but our sins are subtle. Right? They're not as obvious. They're hidden We can explain them away. We're masters of making excuses for them. And for us, although we get to go through society and and, and feel like we're more respectable and and have people honor us and and we we get to play this role, the reality is it's actually to our disadvantage when it comes to asking this question, have I been forgiven much or little because we are masters of deceiving ourselves. See, I think it's a very difficult question for us to answer. Have I been forgiven much or little? It sounds easy, and maybe you can even answer it the the technically right way, but to believe it, that's another thing. So I want to ask you another question. The question is this, how easily do I forgive others? See, I think this is a truly insightful question at the condition of your heart. How easily do I forgive others? Because here's what I've, I've discovered. That people who have been forgiven much in life, and know it, they rarely have a hard time forgiving someone else for whatever it is, friend or foe, who sins against them. See, in my experience, and and this is a hypothesis that I, I will fight for, I think most of us who struggle to forgive, who struggle to forgive people in our lives, I think most of us do that. Most of the reason that we feel that way is because we, deep down at the core of who we are, believe that we have only been forgiven little. Now, I know in you right now there could be objections rising up, dozens of them, saying, well, you don't know what he or she did to me. You don't understand the pain. You don't understand how many times the same thing has happened over and over again. See, I don't, I don't think this is oversimplifying anything. I think this is really deep and truthful. That, that the, the, the degree to which you believe that you've been forgiven is the degree to which you will forgive others. And if you can't forgive others, that's a sign inside your heart that you really don't believe that you've got a very big problem with sin or you don't believe that you've been forgiven much. And yet at the same time, here's what I understand, that just knowing that doesn't necessarily make it easy to forgive someone. It doesn't make the pain go away when someone has hurt you. It doesn't make it easy for you to trust again. It doesn't guarantee reconciliation. Reconciliation is a two-way street. See, but it does enable you, when you know that you've been forgiven much, it enables you to forgive. And what does that mean to forgive? It means that you choose not to hold someone's actions against them. It means that you take the anvil that you're holding over someone's head, just ready to drop it any moment, and they know it, 
You put it down. It means you're, you're no longer living your life to punish that person or to get even. And the good news is, is that when you forgive, in the long run, it means that you're no longer punishing yourself. See, I want you to look at how Jesus concludes this whole encounter. It says, Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. Then the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this man? Who is this guy who even forgives sins? I mean, he does miracles, he teaches, we know that. But who is this man that he forgives sins? I mean, this, this is crazy. This is going too far. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, do you see the contrast? I mean, only Jesus would do this. Only Jesus would walk into the house of a respected Pharisee and call him out. And then speak to a sinful woman who no one wants to talk to and restore her and give her a word of peace and blessing. But, but it's not really that Jesus has animosity towards Simon and love for the woman. Jesus actually has love for them both. You see, what Jesus is trying to do with Simon is he's trying to help Simon see that he's really no different from this woman. He's trying to help Simon come to grips with the fact that he too is a big sinner who has been forgiven much. Just this week, I, I saw this quote from Timothy Keller. He's a, he's a great pastor in New York, a writer, really smart guy. I call him the modern-day C.S. Lewis. Uh, I saw this, and I thought, this is so true. He says, as long as we think we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. Isn't that insightful? As long as we think we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. And I'd like to take that a step further. As long as we think that we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us into being gracious people. As long as we think that we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never turn us into being people who are forgiving of others. See, today for you, depending on which person you are, the person who, who is a big sinner and knows it, or, or the person who is subtle and has convinced yourself deep down in your heart that you've only sinned in small ways and you, you don't need to be forgiven as much as the next guy, Jesus wants to do something good in your life. And the most loving thing, if, if you're the person like Simon, the most loving thing that Jesus could do for you is to knock you down a few pegs. Because it's not until you realize that you are a big sinner, just like everyone else you've ever met, who has been forgiven much, it's not until then that, that you can not only forgive others, but until you can know real peace. See, peace is the bottom line here. That's what Jesus says to this woman. Peace be with you. But peace is the exclusive gift, not of the forgiven, but of forgivers. See, if you want to know real peace in your life, that means you have to let go of the grudges. You have to let go of the vendettas. And when you're forgiven greatly, not only does God free you of your sin and shame, but, but when you're forgiven greatly and you know it, then, then you can begin to let go of all of those people you hold in bondage. And, and I know your grudge, you think it hurts them, and it probably does. But it's also hurting you. See, this is so powerful. But it all starts when you know you're forgiven much. See, when you know you're forgiven much, when you know you're forgiven much, first, your love will be great. When you know you're forgiven much, you'll love much, right? I mean, that's, that's what Jesus said about this woman. The reason she's carrying on this way is because she's been forgiven much, and so she loves much. 
If you're one of the people who, who comes here and, uh, and you just feel like your relationship with God has is, is gotten dry and there's no feeling, you just can't feel anymore and, and, and it just doesn't, you know, it's just kind of bouncing off and you're wondering, you know, what's, what's wrong? What's wrong? Maybe it's the church service, maybe it's the music, maybe it's the pastor's messages. Maybe you should go deeper and you should examine your heart because when you know you're forgiven much, when you know that deep down, when you acknowledge that, then you will love much. See, if your love feels dried up and shallow, maybe you need to go back to the root of the problem and and look at your sin and to realize that you are a big sinner just like the rest of us. But you've been forgiven much. There's nothing that will will cause your, your love for God and for other people to grow exponentially. Nothing more than knowing you've been forgiven much. Not only that, but when you're forgiven much, you can also forgive anything. You can forgive anything. I'm going to tell you, I've had some stuff happen to me in life. And, uh, but for me, I, I, I'm not one of these people who holds on to grudges. And I think the reason that is, is not because I'm so holy or because I've got my life in check. It's because I know that I've been forgiven much. I've had people forgive me some big stuff in life. Some stuff that, that people probably just on their own shouldn't forgive. And, and I've experienced the benefit of grace. And, and when that's happened to you, when you know you're forgiven much by others and by God, then you really can forgive anything. See, when you're forgiven much, finally, you will find peace. Some of you know no peace in your life. You are all distress. You're torn up. And maybe for you, it's not just about confessing your sins to God and receiving forgiveness, but it's, it's really understanding that you've been forgiven much because when you know you're forgiven much, you will know real peace. Because then you'll let go of those grudges. See, see to apply this today, and I don't think this is hard to understand, but I think it's so hard for us to apply. To become someone who is forgiven much and who knows it, then I believe that the key is to get out of denial Get out of denial and face your sin. Be real about the sin in your life. In in the book of James it says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. See, confess your sins not just to God but to one another. Why? Because I think so often our sin doesn't become real until we look into the eyes of another person and not even necessarily the person we've sinned against but just to another person and we confess that And I've done this, and maybe you've done this too, and you know in those moments that when you confess that, it it suddenly becomes so real. The weight of your sin becomes so real, it becomes so overpowering, but then to have that person look back at you and to say, I forgive you, God forgives you, that's powerful. I think there's nothing greater to remind you that you've been forgiven much than having it come out of the mouth of someone else in your life. So, So if you have a friend Maybe you need to create some time, and I know this is weird, we don't do this stuff anymore. But you need to have some time for for mutual confession and absolution. Or maybe if it's not a friend that you can trust, maybe it's a counselor, it's, it's a pastor. See, so many of us are afraid of acknowledging our sins. We're afraid of going there. We're afraid of admitting that we're big sinners. We're afraid of, of looking within our hearts and disclosing that. But I'll tell you what will happen when you admit that, when you face your sin. All of you, whether it's, whether it's the, the big obvious sins of the woman or the subtle cutting sins of Simon, I'll tell you what will happen when you acknowledge those sins. God will forgive you. There's no question. 
You know, when Jesus hung on a cross and, and he died that horrific, gruesome death, do you know why it had to be so horrific and gruesome? It had to be so horrific and gruesome so that you would know without a doubt that even your most horrific and gruesome sins have been covered by his death. See, when you acknowledge your sin, no matter how bad it is, God will forgive you. But not only that, when you acknowledge your sin to another, you will become a person who will love much. And you'll be able to forgive anything. You'll be a person who discovers real peace in receiving forgiveness and then offering it to those around you. See, this is life-changing. The power of forgiveness received and given. But it's not just life-changing. It's world-changing. And so today I want to give you a moment not to confess your sins to one another. There's another time and a place for that, and I, I hope you consider doing that. It's powerful. But today I want to give you a moment to sit before God and to acknowledge your sin, to be real with him that, that we are all big sinners, no matter what it looks like, and to let his forgiveness wash over you because his forgiveness is far greater than your sin.